So a few weeks back, a funeral director from Southeast Michigan uh, wrote a column, uh, and it was in Newsweek magazine. Uh, He wrote, I talked with a family where they had lost the husband. He was 72 years old, vivacious, never sick a day in his life. He went to work, and somebody was coughing. The next day, he told his wife, I'm not feeling too good. I'm coughing. His wife told me that he only had a 99-degree temperature, but because he was feeling bad, she took, she took him to the hospital. She drove through all these triage tents, but by that time, he had almost collapsed. And here's what she told me that really hit me. She asked the hospital staff where she could park her car, and they said, well, ma'am, you can't park your car. We have to call you. Two days later, her husband was dead. She said they called her and told her she could come and see him through the window. That's somebody she's been married to for many years. Their kids didn't even get to see him. These stories are real. That's a real person. Today on the Cold Oatmeal Podcast, we are going to have a conversation with a Michigan funeral director. Have you prepared what you're going to say for the, the intro, since you're part of the intro now? Well, we're doing a new oh. intro? Yes, we have to do an intro. Your are face. you prepared? <gasps> God, no, I'm not. <laughs> no. Aww. Season three, you got to be in it. That's probably what it was, so you already did it. It's already done. <laughs> <laughs> intro over. Welcome to Cold Oatmeal, a podcast by the Rush Strategies team about PR and public affairs. Really. I was distracted staring at Joe's Cold Oatmeal. Yeah, well, it's here. He's got it on his, it's, on his it's desk. It's always right here. here. It's always here. And by the way, the, the, the ratio of like fruit to disgusting is like 1 to 10. It's got some disgusting stuff and some fruit. Yeah, There's nothing disgusting. One part fruit. What's, what, what in there is disgusting? I don't even know what's in it, but it, it looks like cucumber mash and... Maybe a couple of chopped apples. Did you have Burger King for breakfast? What was your... Say that! <laughs> Welcome back to the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. My name is Matt Resch, owner of Resch Strategies. Uh, we are a public affairs and a public relations firm headquartered in downtown Lansing, Michigan. Uh, normally, we are in the historic Naps building, but today I am tucked away in my bedroom, the remote studios. Uh, you can find us at reststrategies.com. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook, Instagram, at reststrategies. And this podcast and all of our past episodes are on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and any number of other podcast platforms. You can check us out there. would really encourage you to log on, follow us there, rate us, review us. That's good for us. Um, as we, we, we grow this little podcast. This is a, a special episode today, a little bit unique twist. Normally right now, I would be looking across my Zoom screen and introducing my, my fine colleagues, Stephanie and Nick and Nikki, uh, Joe, Laura, uh, and our new addition, Carly, uh, who is joining us full time. But I'm doing this one solo. Uh, we're having a conversation today with a friend, a friend and a, a client of, of ours, someone who I've gotten a chance to work with and know uh, in, in our service to the Michigan Funeral Directors Association. Um, I started Rest Strategies 11 years ago, uh, th- this spring actually, and, and the very, one of the very first clients 
we were able to work with was the Michigan Funeral Directors Association. And I think a lot of times people laugh when I say that I work with funeral directors. And uh, I think the, the immediate question is, why do they need PR support, PR help? Well, they've got some interesting stories. And today we're going to hear um, from one of them. Stephen Kemp is the president and CEO of Kemp Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Southfield, Michigan. He's a member of the, Mas- the Michigan Funeral Directors Association and the National Funeral Directors Association. He's been in the business for 36 years. Uh, he's, the, he's the man who wrote those words that I read at the, at the beginning of, of this episode. Uh, a few weeks back, he uh, put together a, a column and he sent it into Newsweek magazine and uh, they published it. At the end of April, I'm gonna I'll link to that uh, here in the uh, with the podcast. It's a, it's an interesting read and uh, really gives a firsthand account of what it's like to be on the front lines of the COVID nineteen crisis in one of America's hotspots, uh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Steve was there working uh, with his wife, his son, and in the family business and. He took some time this afternoon to walk through what the last seven, eight weeks have been like. So, uh, Stephen Kemp. So, Steve Kemp, thank you so much for taking some time to join the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. How's my favorite Democrat funeral director doing? <laughs> doing great. Yeah. A little little backstory on that. This is a couple. Was it what, uh, well, what yeah. year did you? What year was that campaign that you ran, Steve? That we we helped you out with, and I, I could tell you were all skeptical that Republicans were going to try that to help was- you win your seat. <laughs> That was in 2016, and then I tried it again in 2018. Yeah, yeah. I knew I knew it was going to turn out bad, but you did help, Matt. So, <laughs> well, well, good. Yes, those I, were. I guess I wasn't red enough. <laughs> those were those were better days. Those were better days. Um, Absolutely. Hey, I appreciate you taking time. You know, I've we've we've worked together a little bit on and off. You know, I've I've worked with the the funeral directors uh, since I started my business, so I've gotten to know the industry a little bit, and, and you and your colleagues. And obviously, this is a, a a tough time for a lot of people in the healthcare sector. But I think a, an untold story is the one of of funeral directors. And so I wanted to get. I, I saw a, a column you wrote in Newsweek uh, a few weeks back, and it really has kind of stuck with me. And so I wanted to see if, if I could ask you some questions about that and just kind of what, what life has been like for the last seven or eight weeks for you and your wife and son as you've, you're operating your business. So I guess I'll start. Well, with this. you know, uh, it has tested. Our- sure. Let me, let me just, let me just start with this. I want to, I'm going to read back to you your own, your own words. You said, you said in that Newsweek piece, um, I'm usually pretty good at handling stress and overload, but this has been a little overwhelming for me. My wife, my son, and I are all stretched thin. It's finally starting to hit me as a professional and as a human because these deaths are people that I know. 
Uh, you wrote that back in uh, end of April, and I think you in the time you had dealt with 58 cases that were uh, COVID-19 folks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Three, we're three weeks later. How many cases have you dealt with at this point? There are now, um, last count, we're 72 now, including, you know, 72. I'm up to 72. And there are still three of them out there. So Okay. Yeah. So what is it? What has this last eight weeks been like for for you and your business and your your family? It's a, f- a family owned business, right? Thirty six years. Yeah, well, yes. Well, I've been doing funeral service for thirty six years, but uh, the business is relatively new. Uh, we've been in business since August of twenty seventeen in this building. Um, I um, uh, had a business across the street that the build, building was owned by somebody else, so I moved into a brand new building here. Um, in August of 2017, and we've been doing wonderfully since then. And it's my wife, son, and, and me, and, and some dedicated staff. Um, we um, typically do about 200, 250 calls a year um, in a pretty good sized building, about 17,000 square foot building. But let me give you a, um, a number that will probably, that, 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 that was just unsurreal. That's the only way I can come up with is surreal. In, in April, we did 158 calls, where we normally do about 25. Wow. So you're talking almost four times, you know, the, the, through a little over three times the business that we typically do. Um, and in that, um, it was almost like, uh, I think, managing a mass casualty because the systems that were in place didn't work anymore um, in terms of overload at the hospital, overload uh, at the funeral home, overload in cooler space, overload in space period. The constraints put on by the government, um, you know, by the, the, the governor in terms of how many people could, could meet together. Uh, one week was 50, you know, for several weeks it's 50, now it's down to 10. Um, and when it was down to 10, I had already scheduled a week full of funerals that next week. And that was on a Friday afternoon uh, that that was dropped to us. And so we had to call all the families and deal with their disappointment and, and what to do. And we used technology to very effectively to to try to bridge the tide and that uh, webcasting became more of the norm than the exception. Uh, so that did help. Uh, thank, thank goodness with my millennial funeral directors and uh, sitting up something real quick on our surfaces, we were able to webcast uh, the majority of the services that wanted them done. And that helped kind of soothe some of the issues that we had with the families. Um, uh, this after everything is over, you know, which I'm hoping it'll be over soon, but I, you know, who knows? I think that uh, we have to examine a new way of um, doing what we do as a business. Um, I, I, in this paradigms, now what do I mean by that? I mean that people doing funerals or going to funerals or attending funerals or what they're used to changed on this head this past six or eight weeks. Um, what other illness do you know of where the family can't go through their typical grief process and um, see their loved ones while they're ill, see their loved ones at death, 
uh, and were not unable to do so. Uh, so that was a whole different kind of circumstances surrounding this. Uh, um, I think I told the story in that Newsweek article about one particular family that touched me a lot, where it was a husband and wife, and um, they went through all the protocol, the COVID thing. She dropped her husband off at the ER at uh, Henry Ford in West Bloomfield here. And what was striking to me was she told me, she said, well, I just drove him up there after we went through these two tents. We get to the ER. They take him out of the car. He's talking. He's a little short of breath. She says, well, where do I park the car? I'll be in as soon as I park the car. And they said, no, ma'am. You drive off, we'll call you. And um, she was unable to see him. Two days later, he was deceased. Uh, the next time she saw him, it was through the window in an ICU unit. And the next time she saw him was in a casket at, at my funeral home. That story touched me tremendously. And that, that's not the only ones. We've had, uh, what's different from this, we've had husband and wives where both have died. Um, uh, we've had situations where the husband or the wife has died and the spouse is in the hospital on a ventilator, unable to uh, sign for their release from the hospital, for one. Uh, number two is the children or the next of kin weren't able to do anything because the next of kin was incapacitated and the courts were closed. So no emergency personal rep, no emergency kind of guardian POA kind of things because the courts being closed. So we saw government in its real issue, I mean, in its real role, shut down um, and really caused a lot of things that we never had to deal with in our life before. Um, and we've had, and not just one, we had multiple cases of those uh, in my community. Um, uh, this tested my Christian spirituality to, the, to its limit. Um, and I, I always tell people, you gotta, you, you got to be Christian to do this, because uh, otherwise you wouldn't be able to handle it. What was, um, how did, when did you know, when did you start to know this was going to be this bad? At what point? At what point? Probably. Did you think that? Okay, yeah, this is going to be. This is going to uh, be. Bad. I would say the beginning of March. Yeah, end of March, I saw a uptick. Uh, I will tell you what my suspected first case was. Was I never get it? Uh, I was in Troy, um, and uh, I was called by the medical examiner because no other funeral director wanted to touch this person. Um, and, and never, there were like five four police cars in uh, a young man who died in his home. Uh, he was some kind of engineer. I remember his mother had just visited, had left and gone to Chicago uh, because he had a very bad cold. He was a single man, no, no spouse, but his mother had gone back to Chicago. She had called him uh, for a wellness check and see how he was doing. She didn't answer the phone. So it caused her to call the police um, and do a wellness check on this young man. And uh, there he was on the floor in the hallway at the kitchen. Uh, I think he had the phone in his hand, looked like he was trying to call out or do something. And the police were frightened out of their ears, you know, thinking this was a, you know, the first COVID case that they had. They had talked to Homeland Security and um, um, CDC and, uh, the Michigan Department of Health and 
uh, said take precautions. So we went in there with precautions, and I shipped his remains back to uh, Chicago. I think that was the very first case. And then that was on a weekend. That was on a Saturday, I specifically remember. And then it started ticking up. Like, I normally get one call a day. It was like two and then three. And then all of them had the same kind of pattern, you know, uh, trouble breathing. They Then they, you know, they just died. Uh, there, and then the house calls started. And so, uh, you know, a lot of this was undiagnosed. Um, it may have been COVID, but really wasn't documented as such. Uh, then the latter part of April, the first part of April just exploded. I mean, we were getting five and six, up to seven a day. Um, we were at capacity for a couple days. Um, some of the other uh, members in the Detroit area were not taking any other calls. Um, so I had to take a few of those uh, because the larger firms were just over capacity in, in numbers that they'd never seen before. And it, it was specifically concentrated in what northwest part of Detroit, where I am in southern Oakland County in, in Southfield Oak Park. And when I looked at the numbers from the Department of Health, we were right in the middle of that area of where all the COVID uh, cases were concentrated, uh, because I'm just two miles north of Detroit. Um, and this was the population that was getting affected the most. Uh, zip code 48237, I think, was the worst in Oakland County. And um, so that's right in my service area. So we picked up majority of those. Um, and, and then that's when I knew something was really going wrong. Uh, my church uh, is here in Southfield and a lot of three or four of my members died. Uh, three or four members of the other church that's close to me passed away suddenly. Uh, somewhere on the ventilator. And then the part, latter part of April, we started seeing the long-term uh, patients dying in the hospital. Um, and this, I think this is when it got to me the most, was about the, the third week of April, I was besieged because by that time, uh, I was out of my PPE, which I always, you know, I'm a scientist, you know, I always have the, I've always had stocked up on personal protective equipment, but it became unavailable. Um, you couldn't buy bleach uh, in any of the big box stores because people had to run on them. We couldn't, things that we use every day. Uh, nitrile gloves kind of disappeared because the healthcare professionals were taking them off. And then I started saying, well, if I don't get any more PPE, we're out of business. Um, and luckily I had some stocked up. I had gowns and things like that. So we were able to, to, to kind of muscle our way through the, the peak of this um, crisis, which, you know, I see it, you know, subside a little bit now that we've done social distancing. And what I'm getting now, I think three of the calls that I got today uh, were people who were long-term illness and just finally pooped out and gave out and died. Um, and not the uh, hyper-acute cases that I was getting before. Has your staff stayed healthy throughout this whole time? Yes, they have. Um, you know, I suspect, here, here's the thing, Matt, and, you know, this is something probably you would agree on. You know, we, we you know, you and I and Phil have these <laughs> huge discussions, and this is what I enjoy about our relationship is, you know, Democrat versus Republican. Um, um, this is the true form of government, um, and we weren't able to get tested. My wife 
tested positive in uh, early March. Um, she's a double transplant patient. She got a fever, called her doctor. Uh, they, him and Hans, told her to stay in place. Uh, so I quarantined along with her, taking care of her. Five days later, she did get in the clinic. They um, tested her. Five days later, she found out she was positive, had COVID. But she, she went through it, her uh, quarantine pretty well with just minor to the moderate symptoms. Um, I had a temperature for a couple days, took Tylenol, and I was fine. However, uh, when I asked to be tested, they told me they couldn't because I wasn't in the acute phase and um, there wasn't enough testing to figure out. So I, you know, I, I self quarantined. So even after your um, wife, staff, had, even after your uh, wife had tested positive, you wouldn't, you couldn't get a test. That's correct. Which I see is a crucial part of this. So I, you know, and I'm asthmatic, so I'm at a, at a high risk for having it, but um, I was fine. Uh, and then after our seven days and the health nurse, the Oakland County health nurse did monitor and said, you can come out Monday. And this was after 14 days. And I did that. Um, but early on, I will tell you, you know, when I look back on things, my son was um, at a convention in February in Atlanta, and he came back with a super terrible flu, and they tested him for, they found out he was influenza B, you know, and by that, you know, before that, there was no suspicion of COVID. Um, and he was down for 10 days, and, you know, he's 28 years old and athlete, former athlete. And uh, I think he came right back to work after that. And I don't know if that's where it started, but many of us at the funeral home have been lucky. Uh, none of us have, uh, you know, we had two that self-quarantined uh, because their spouses had gotten it or, or showed symptoms. But other than that, we've been pretty healthy. Now, I will tell you, my colleagues, uh, a couple of my colleagues, one in Flint, lost two of their employees. Uh, another one down here in the city uh, that also had a lot of the cases lost two of their employees to COVID. So it, it has affected um, our community uh, pretty severely in the funeral service community here in the city. Has there um, been any speculation? And, as, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. You can go ahead. Go ahead. I guess I was, I'm curious, is there any reason, have you seen any speculation or, or science as to why your zip code there was so heavily impacted? Was there an event or something that, that led to such large numbers there in your community? Do you know? No. Um, I think primarily, um, as you well know, Southfield is a very diverse community. It is, it is a melting pot of all ethnicities. There's Korean, there's Chinese, there's a good number of Chaldeans, mostly African-American, white, Jewish. Uh, they're all um, uh, ethnicities here, but they all got sick. I know in the Jewish community, my Jewish colleague, which is about a mile away, uh, and the funeral home had an uptick in business. So did my Chaldean colleague two miles to the north. Uh, he's on 12 mile. I'm on 10 mile. Uh, they saw a huge uh, increase in their community. And what, what I'm basically seeing, and I'm sure the numbers will follow up. Now I'm just speaking empirically from what I see, is it's a adversely affected minority communities. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't just mean African-American. Um, it has affected Jewish community. It's affected... Um, the Chaldean community, and my theory is, is that we are in much more close quarters, and we, we have a tendency to congregate as a family in multiple generations in the same household, 
more insane celebration. So that's why you start to see households get ill. And I think that might be it because of our, uh, what we do as tradition. We worship together very closely. Uh, we eat together. Um, you, you might have, I know in the Chaldean community, there are multiple families that may live in the same home, same in our community. But also, too, in the city where it's more densely populated, I think that contributed to the spread of this virus. This virus is an interesting virus. Coronavirus has been around for many, many years. They're the same kind of virus that causes a common cold or common flu. However, this particular strain is very, very communicable, uh, which makes it very scary. And most of all, I think once we, the science comes out of this, is I think there are a, a good population who I call asymptomatic carriers. And I think that's the crucial piece of this thing of why it's so uh, pervasive um, in our community. Uh, there's a, uh, um, a church sect called the Church of God in Christ, where there's about 13 members of Church of God in Christ, including the second highest presiding bishop in the nation, uh, excuse me, in the world, uh, just down the street from me, died. A lot of its bishops died, and, and uh, uh, superintendents and pastors of churches passed away because they were at a meeting. Uh, if you want to do, you know, call um, tracing, I think that that was one. They had a big meeting, I think mid March or something like that, and that a lot of them got got ill. A couple ministers got ill. We just had a, ser uh, a father and son, uh, pastor and son, that were very close to just died together. Uh, where he took his dad to the doctor a week later, he got sick, and his funeral was today. Their funerals were today. Um, so I'm seeing a big pattern there um, because I think we're for closely together. Uh, my theory is also, too, is that we have a tendency not to seek medical care because of its cost. A lot of us are um, uh, not insured um, or have high co-pays, and I think that kind of, oh, it's just a cold, it's just a cold. Uh, I'll wait it out. I think the other part of that is we just don't know enough about it because I, I've had, as I interview clients, not only for funerals, but I just talked to them. A lot of them have went to the hospital, went to the ER, got sent home, came back two days later, deathly ill. Mm -hmm. So we're missing something in the chain here too. We don't, I think primarily we don't know enough about it. One particular hospital, I'm sure you read about it, is about two, three miles away from me. Uh, it's a DMC hospital called Grace, Sinai Grace Hospital was just inundated with um, COVID cases where they couldn't handle it. They had, you know, they were putting people in sleep lab and the staff would walked out because it's just an incredible load of uh, cases that they had there. But when you peel the onion back, they are the only hospital in the west side of Detroit. So we got an entire side of the city of Detroit, and, four, and they were in 48235, which is the highest COVID cases in the state of Michigan, zip code. And they were the only hospital in that entire area, close to one here at Providence, uh, Southfield Ascension, which is just a mile away from me. Um, so there, there are some uh, demographics there that can't be overlooked. Um, if you notice, the patterns seem to be New York City, New Jersey, California, close packed in area, San Francisco. So I think that had a lot to do with the spread of, of the virus. But most of all, 
And what was scary to me was the lack of response um, for a mass crisis like this. It's not, it's different from a mass casualty event in that, you know, you have at one time, you, you have all this uh, activity and then it's done. This kept coming in wave after wave after wave after week after week. And then you got, you know, the people, first responders were getting sick and us as the last responders were getting sick, but we were overlooked a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't look at the mortuary workers because I've always labeled us as the in-care health professions. Um, but uh, we got exposed and are suffering just as much um, as the healthcare workers. But I think a lot of us until recently were looked over. Because you can, um, you can the even if a body is passed, a person has, has died. They uh, correct me if I'm wrong. They're still, right? they're still, they're they still, still contagious, right? Absolutely. And we don't know enough science. Yes, it can live on inanimate objects three to four days, but a virus is what we call an obligate parasite. What does that mean? It means it has to have a live, living cell to grow and replicate on. But all when you die, all your cells don't die in one small swoop. There are plenty of, 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 of substrates there for the virus to grow and replicate on after a period of time. Um, the body fluids, the cough, the, the, the oral pharynx is full of viral load. So we have to be very careful with that after death. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to infect us, but I still think this virus, because it's so communicable, it's not only infectious, it's also very com- communicable, is that we had to watch, you know, take extra precautions on top of the universal precautions that we typically take with every client um, and, uh, so that none of our staff would get ill. Um, so I had to educate them on, you know, we were wearing Tyvek suits on every removal. Um, we had visors and uh, things that we ne- typically wouldn't do over and above the universal precautions that we already use. I'm curious how have how have you found the families to be during this process? Are they reacting differently than you would find, you know, two three months ago, or when a, a family were making arrangements for a loved one? Is as absolutely is the fact that their their family member fell victim to a pandemic changed the way people have responded at this time? I, they have. Um, like I was telling you before, it's it's what's really frightening about this illness is that they families are not able to do what they typically do hug their loved one touch their loved one in the hospital a lot of them since admission never saw for a whole month never got a chance to see their loved one because they won't allow them the hospitals were locked down for safety reasons and they were only able to see them through zoom or facetime or uh, electronic means were able to talk or see their loved ones or updates from nurses who are uh, the ultimate heroes in this whole thing, and, you know, and they were the only contact that they had with their loved one. So that altered the whole grieving um, process. And then after they die, they don't get support systems because of the limited amount of people. You don't have friends and family come and hug you. The other thing is uh, people are frightened. Oh, uh, he died from what? He died from COVID? That, do you have COVID? Do your family members have COVID? I ain't coming in your house. So all of those questions came, you know, come into being when a time when, when the family needs the most support, the most bodily support. I mean, not just through the phone, but actually persons there hugging and touching and saying, it's going to be all right. 
So the, you, you've got the people who say, well, I'm not going to get sick because that means you got it and you got it and you got it. So suspicion and miseducation comes into being. Um, so they don't come to the funeral and they're afraid to come to the funeral because they're afraid that they may catch COVID from the family members. So that's a different dichotomy altogether. Um, the family members say, well, I don't know. I was taking care of them, but they won't test me. I don't know if I'm positive. I don't know if I got over it or not. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is probably the most scaring, you know, scareful thought about this is that, and us as funeral professionals, I don't look at people any different than anything else. Um, I try to do what I can to serve them. And, you know, I wear a mask now and, and gloves and, and we, we disinfected the place every night and at, after every movement. But most of all, we've done arrangements through um, technology, through our computers and through PDF, fillable PDFs and uh, virtual showrooms. Uh, and so that's the way, kind of the way we've been making arrangements with minimal contact with family until the time of service. So which I is to, different. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted, I wanted to ask, you know, obviously you, you see what's happening in the news and the conversations about communities out, outside of Southeast Michigan and where you yes. live. Yes. And kind of the frustration that, that people feel with being shut down, kept at home, um, out of work, you know, mm-hmm. no school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't help but think a lot of times that because of our distance from what you're facing in, in Southfield and, and Metro Detroit, we can feel that way mm-hmm. because it, it hasn't, COVID hasn't really touched my family. Um, uh, or, and I think a lot of people outside, out state can, can say the same and maybe can't relate and why they're as frustrated as they are. And I guess I'm curious what you would say to folks who aren't in Southfield or who aren't in Detroit or who haven't been as close. To, I mean, there's probably next to the doctors and nurses, maybe anyone who's dealt been closer to this than, than you and your colleagues and what you might say to Absolutely. someone outside out state. I will say to them um, at, as the same thing as I did for, as you know, presiding officer, MFDA, NFDA, and as a funeral director and as a human and as a Christian, uh, you know, I think when I think about it spiritually, it's going to affect all of us. One day, and, I, and what I say is, basically, is it's going to come to a town near you soon. It just hadn't gotten to you there yet. And um, I think because of what, what really frightens me um, uh, and makes me sad is people feel that, oh, okay, it only affects them, so it's really not us, quote-unquote. So we need to continue on doing our lives as we've done it before. And you're, you're, you're hampering our freedom and uh, liberties as, as protected against the constitution. Um, and it's, this is a health issue. This is not a political issue. And if they see what we've seen as healthcare professionals, as the last responders, they would pay attention. I, I just want to, you know, Matt, I think that, you know, I, not many people like you and I, um, uh, talk and, and discuss in real time and, and real issues to talk to one another. We don't talk past one another, uh, you and I in field, and we have, you know, real deep discussions about republicanism and, and Democrats and what they mean. 
But most of all, this is a people issue, and we got to get really back to caring for one another. We're still all humans. What happens to me is eventually going to happen to you. Uh, so it's not their disease. It's not because they live the way they live. They have no choice. Um, there are poor people out in outstate Michigan, and those are the ones going to get hit. And I'm going to tell you where it's going to happen, Matt, and take my word for me. It's going to happen in veterans' homes and nursing homes. Um, um, uh, it already is. Uh, it is. It's yeah, in small communities. Yep. And in their own way, they're going to have their own little small epidemic in, in that area. And all it takes is one person to pass it around, and it will happen to a community near you. Um, you know, and, and what really disappointed me, Matt, is that, you know, I was hearing, you know, listening to the news and, and people saying, well, don't come up to your cabin up north because we don't want it. Uh, you know, people who live down here who may have cabins up north and whatever in small towns. And, you know, I read that and it kind of disappointed me um, in that, boy, when did we, where did we go as, as a community? Where did we go um, as a people? I mean, what happened to us caring for one another despite? our political, color, ethnic differences. And um, I, I, I would have a tendency to say that um, that's what disturbs me more than anything. I, you know, I think more than anything, just like FDR had a fireside chat, George Bush at 9-11 uh, bought the community, bought the world together, bought our America together, because we really didn't look at it um, as Democrat and Republican, we looked at it as a disease that we all got it together working as nobody. I don't think anybody doesn't want not to go to work. Um, and I think a lot of these differences that have been stoked by both sides, um, viruses have a tendency to, 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 to this pandemic. If nothing else, I'm praying that it brings us together than rather apart. Well, Stephen Kemp, President and CEO of Kemp Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Southfield, Michigan. Um, I appreciate you taking some time this afternoon to, to talk with us and uh, share, what, share what you've been experiencing there at the heart of uh, the COVID-19 uh, response down in, in Metro Detroit. This, right. is, this has been a, a special episode of the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. Uh, this is Matt Resch of Resch Strategies, and we will talk to you again next time.